Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. Hello once again sports fans and welcome to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and once again we're here to examine the most notable sports moments one week at a time. And in this week's show, two of the greatest boxing rivalries ever to take place have two key bouts taking place in them. And also a long-standing NFL franchise moves to another city and an NFL superstar reaches a championship in the ring. But to start things off will be this week's main event. Hello once again and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you are locked in to where we talk about the greatest events in the history of sports one week at a time. In this week's main event, we will delve into what a lot of sports fans will be talking about for the next week or couple weeks, and that is the upcoming NCAA basketball tournament. As a country and a culture, we are fascinated, almost obsessed with origin myths, and once Has something taken hold in our popular consciousness, we have to know when and where and how it became that way. And for example, people over a century have credited Abner Doubleday for the invention of baseball. And for those of you who believe that, I hate to break it to you, but it's not true. Baseball evolved into the game that we see today. And another event of the sporting year, which we are trying to tie down the origin of, is this rite of spring that we call March Madness. Now, there are several moments in the illustrious past of the NCAA basketball tournament that people believe started the madness, possibly the 1979 national championship game between Indiana State and more specifically Larry Bird and Michigan State led by the charismatic guard from Lansing named Magic. It could also be 1985 when the tournament had expanded to its current 64-team limit and that was that same year the lowest seeded team ever to win a national championship was when Villanova upset powerful Georgetown in Lexington, Kentucky, no less on April Fool's night. Both of those instances are logical and well documented, yet I humbly believe that the madness truly started with the 1974 NCAA tournament. 
Now, what makes this tournament so special? Now, well, the remarkable qualities of the ter this tournament became evident even before the tournament officially started. Now, in college basketball at the time, only 25 teams made the tournament field and only the conference champions were eligible. That fact set the stage for a remarkable showdown between the top-ranked North Carolina State Wolfpack and the Maryland Terrapins ranked number four in the country in the championship game of the Atlantic Coast Conference. The ACC was, back then, what it is now, a powerhouse conference with several great teams within this table. Along with those teams, you have, of course, the usual suspects of Duke, North Carolina, Virginia, and Wake Forest. Now, this top five showdown took place this week in 1974, which would be the springboard for one of the most remarkable tournaments ever to take place. Both squads were loaded with supreme basketball talent, some of the best ever to play at the collegiate level. The top-ranked Wolfpack, led by Associated Press National Player of the Year, David Thompson, and also joining Thompson was the slick but diminutive point guard named Monty Towell, standing five foot six inches tall. However, on the other end of the spectrum was a towering center, Tom Burleson, for the Wolfpack, standing at a remarkable seven foot four inches tall. Burleson was the anchor of a team that held down the number one ranking since seven-time defending NCAA champ UCLA, inexplicably lost back-to-back -back games earlier that year to Oregon and Oregon State. North Carolina State was coached by the very excitable yet brilliant Norm Sloan, who was looking to lead his alma mater to their second consecutive ACC championship. Standing in the way of the Wolfpack, however, in Greensboro were the Terrapins, who was loaded in their own right and had featured six future NBA draft picks. That included the combo guard named John Lucas, who was also a pro tennis player, and two low post players that were the best in the nation. At power forward was New York City high school legend Lynn Elmore, who Sports Illustrated earlier that year tapped the next Lou Alcindor. And at center was another towering figure in Tom Burleson. Also standing over seven feet tall, McMillan was the starting center for the Olympic basketball team in 1972 and was the key linchpin for Maryland and head coach Lefty Drizel. Now, both teams breathed through the early rounds of the ACC tournament and met in the title game at the Coliseum in Greensboro, and ironically, which would have been that year's site of the Final Four. Both teams had battled for 40 minutes and the game ended in a tie after regulation. In overtime, the Wolfpack leaned on the inside presence of Burleson, who propelled North Carolina State to a 103-100 win over Maryland, claiming their second straight ACC title. Maryland had finished the regular season as the number four ranked team in the country, yet they didn't qualify for the NCAA tournament because, as I said, teams were eligible for the tournament only if they won their conference tournament. So, with that in mind, many college basketball sports writers and experts consider the 1974 Maryland Terrapin basketball team as the greatest team ever not to participate in the tournament. And the game would be instrumental the following year in the expansion of the NCAA tournament to, 64 te to 32 teams, which meant that had the game taken place a year later, Maryland, though they would have lost, would have made the tournament. However, they would have been out of they were out of the tournament. And after their victory, the Wolfpack would advance to the NCAA tournament after receiving a first round bye. The Wolfpack 
would easily get past the Providence Friars and the Pittsburgh Pi uh, Panthers to reach the Final Four, which would be, again, back at the Greensboro Coliseum in North Carolina. However, the next contest, the national semifinal, would be a tall task to say the least. The Wolfpack would take on the reigning seven-time national champion, UCLA Bruins. In addition to winning seven consecutive national titles, UCLA was also on a 38-game winning streak in the tournament, a record that hasn't even been approached since they set that record way back when. Though the Bruins uncharacteristically struggled through the regular season, they were prohibited favorites to claim their 10th national championship under legendary head coach, the man they called the Wizard of Westwood, John Wooden. UCLA was also led on the court by the big redhead from Helix High School in San Diego, California, center Bill Walton, and who was widely considered one of the greatest collegiate basketball players ever, leading the Bruins the season before to an unbelievable postseason and unbelievable national championship win where he scored over 40 points and beating Memphis State in St. Louis. Along with Walton were other key members of the Walton game, which included Keith Wilkes and Dave Myers. After a first half standoff, the Brewers would race out to a 14-3 run to start the second half and was sparked by a number of miscues by North Carolina State. However, the Wolfpack would get themselves together and rally behind All-American David Thompson, who finished with a game-high 28 points. However, midway through the second half, with an 11-point lead UCLA had enjoyed, was suddenly cut down to three with 57-54, to 54, with precious little time remaining. Now, with less than five minutes to play, Thompson came up big again with a driving layup over Walton, giving the Pack their first lead since the first half. Yet the Bruins would not go away as Myers connected on a 17-foot jumper that would tie the game at 65 apiece with less than a minute to play. NC State would hold the ball for the final shot but would fail to score before the end of regulation, extending the game into overtime. The two teams, the two of the top four teams of the country, would battle into an extra period with the Bertha in the national championship on the line. However, both teams failed to play to a draw in the first overtime, and the Bruins and the Wolfpack would go on to a second, second incredible and exciting overtime period. In the opening moments of the second extra session, UCLA looked to settle the issue very quickly as the Bruins spurted out to a seven-point lead with three minutes to play, which seemed even larger considering the fact that there was no shot clock back then. The Bruins seemed to be on their way to another championship game appearance, yet the stingy Wolfpack defense for its back-to-back turnovers and shot by Thompson and another guard, Mo Rivers, rallied North Carolina State. Shortly after Thompson connected on a driver layup to give the Wolfpack the lead that they would not relinquish. North Carolina State's 80-77 win not only placed the Wolfpack in the title game, but ended UCLA's winning streak in the tournament and their impressive seven consecutive national titles. Two nights later, North Carolina State concluded their championship run by knocking off Al McGuire's Marquette Warriors 76-64, claiming the school's first national title. Thompson was named the tournament's most outstanding player throughout the tournament and would later be drafted by the Denver Nuggets of the ABA, where he would play his remarkable pro career. Though the Final Four that season was impressive and entertaining, the national semifinal contest is the, is the, one, is the one game that most people remember. Years later, UCLA, uh, USA Today listed the game as one of the greatest games ever in the history of the tournament. 
This was the beginning of what we know and love about the tournament. The Marsh Madness Basketball Tournament, that it, which is the centerpiece and one of the most anticipated and the best sports weekend on the calendar all year long. The buzzer beaters, the surprising upsets, has given the tournament its character over the years. And it all started right here this week in 1974 at the Greensboro Coliseum when NC State defeated Maryland in the ACC Tournament Championship game. And now, this week's Top 5. once again and thank you for joining us here at the historically speaking sports podcast which right now we are one of many great podcasts here at the sports history network and one of the new ones that has come aboard here at the at shn i like to call is what was the score by jeremy Furness, which proves that this network is going worldwide his show based in jolly old england talks about a variety of sports topics from a British point of view. So check him out because he includes a lot of British basketball and he talks about sports history theory and other notable events. Once again, that's the podcast, What Was the Score? And you can only find that podcast right here exclusively on the Sports History Network. And right now, we're heading headlong into this week's top five. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and right now we're going to delve and dive headlong into this week's top five. And we're going to start off with number five, and that is 1960, when the Chicago Cardinals move out of Chicago and set up their nest in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, the Cardinals had been one of the charter franchises of the National Football League beginning in 1920, but they had been a franchise starting out in 1898, starting off playing games at Morgan Park in Chicago and eventually moved on from there. And if you want to get some more in-depth history of the Chicago Cardinals, I suggest you check out Joe Ziemba's podcast called When Football Was Football. And he goes really, really deep down into the history of the Chicago Cardinals. So check him out whenever you get a chance. And he's also a member of this fine group called the Sports History Network. But more along those lines, uh, the Cardinals 
would move out of Chicago to St. Louis in 1960, where they would stay until 1988, where they eventually, of course, would move to the Valley of the Sun, play their games starting off as the Phoenix Cardinals, and a couple of years later changed their name to Arizona Cardinals, and now they play their games in Glendale, Arizona. But their roots begin right there in Chicago, uh, all the way up until 1959, where actually they won a couple of NFL championships, including the 1947 NFL Championship where they defeated the Philadelphia Eagles over in Comiskey Park, which is another great Chicago landmark. Number four, the New York Highlanders joined the American League in 1903. Now, the New York Highlanders was one of the charter members of the new American American Baseball League that would be a direct rival to the National League in baseball. And the Highlanders would play their games in Manhattan called Hilltop Park over there in northern Manhattan. And, and for a time, they were one of the least successful teams in the New York area, trailing behind, of course, the more established and powerhouse New York Giants, as well as the Brooklyn Dodgers. But the Highlanders would be something of a afterthought to a lot of baseball fans in the New York area in the early part of the 20th century. But, of course, all of that would change, first of all, beginning in 1913, when that team would change their name to the New York Yankees. And their fortunes would further change, even for the better, in 1919, where they would get a slugger-slash-pitcher by the name of Babe Ruth to join the New York Yankees and end up changing the course of that franchise and the rest of baseball history. So it all started with that franchise, the New York Highlanders, becoming a major force in the American League. And all that started in 1903, this week in 1903. Number three, Eddie Sutton, college basketball, longtime college basketball coach, becomes the fourth coach ever, the first coach ever, excuse me, to lead four different France, four different schools to the NCAA tournament. His long story career began at Creighton University where he would lead the Blue Jays to the tournament and follow that off, going off to Fayetteville, Arkansas, leading the Razorbacks to a tournament, and then later on going to Lexington, Kentucky, where he took over from Joe B. Hall as head coach in Lexington and leading that prestigious Blue Blood program to the tournament. Eddie Sutton, this week in 1991, became the first coach ever to lead four different schools to the NCAA tournament, this time in 1991, leading the Oklahoma State Cowboy, where he coached there for a number, number of years and had a lot of great success there and in, in, um, over there at, in Cowboy land. Number two, and in their third and final meeting in for the heavyweight title, Floyd Patterson KOs Ingmar Johansson at the Miami Convention Hall, Miami Beach, Florida, to reclaim the, to retain his heavyweight title in 1961. Floyd Patterson and Ingmar Johansson, this was the, this was their third fight in three years. And this was back in the days of boxing when you would have like a major fight every few months. But this was a major, major fight between two major great heavyweights. Ingmar Johansson in 1959 had KO'd Floyd Patterson to win the heavyweight title and he became the first Swede 
ever to win the heavyweight title by beating Patterson. A year later, Patterson would would get the heavyweight title back by KOing uh, Johansson in the third round. But this time in Miami Beach in 1961, this week in 1961, Johansson was no match for Patterson as Patterson knocked him out in the sixth round to reclaim the to claim the heavyweight champ title, which he would keep for a long period of time. That is the number two team, uh, number two event this week in sports history. And this took place back in 1961. And number one, 10 years later, 50 years ago this past week, more specifically, March 8th, 1971, would be the first meeting of perhaps one of the greatest rivalries in all of boxing. Whenever you hear the term or the name Ali versus Frazier, it brings back great, great boxing memories when boxing was pretty much in its heyday. But March 8, 1971 was the first meeting between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and one of the most hyped fights ever in the history of the sport. Taking place in New York City, Madison Square Garden, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali would battle for 15 brutal rounds, including, I believe it was the 10th round or 10th or 12th round, when Joe Frazier knocked Ali down. And Frazier would hold on in an epic, epic battle where Joe Frazier would win a unanimous decision after 15 rounds to retain the heavyweight title that Ali was stripped from when he refused to be inducted into the army during the Vietnam War. Frazier and Ali would fight two more times. Another time would be in 1973 where Ali would win the title from Frazier and of course a couple years later in the thriller in Manila where Frazier did not come out after at the beginning of the 14th round. Ali would claim the heavy would retain the heavyweight title, beating Frazier that time in three of the most epic fights ever in the history of boxing over the last 50 years. That was this week in history, the top five events of this week. And now we're going to close the show out, of course, with shout outs. Hello and welcome back for the third and final segment of this week's Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. So right now we're going to be doing some shout outs. And this week's shout out goes to Chicago Bears Hall of Famer Bronco Nagurski. This week in 1941, Bronco Nagurski, of course, known as one of the biggest and one of the most talented players in NFL history, as well as one of the strongest on this date, was crowned the pro wrestling champion, beating Ray Steele in Minnesota to claim that title. And that kind of opened the door for a lot of ex-NFL players or current NFL players to try their hand in the square circle. And we're going to talk about just a few of those because there have been a long, long, long list of great NFL players 
that became pro wrestlers during and after their pro careers ended. One of the first ones right after Nagurski was a man by the name of Vern Gagne, who was a very well-known wrestler after his playing career. But a lot of people don't realize that he played a number of years in the National Football League, more specifically for the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears during the 1940s and early 1950s. Heading off into the 1960s, there was two very notable wrestlers, especially during my generation, who were part of the American Football League, first of which was a man by the name of Edward McDaniel. And he played for the, he actually won a championship with the Houston Oilers in 1960, but he ends up, ended up playing with the Denver Broncos, the Miami Dolphins, and the New York Jets. But wrestling fans will remember Edward McDaniel as Wahoo McDaniel. And he is notable in pro football history for being the only person ever to have his nickname on the back of his jersey rather than his last name. You know how most most people would have their last name on the back of their jersey? No, he would have Wahoo on the back of his jersey, which added a little bit more to the AFL's you know, image of being a little bit out there, a little bit more pushing the envelope, so to speak, during the 1960s. During that same time, there was also another big, big defensive tackle who was a star of the San Diego Chargers as well as the Houston Oilers and the Kansas City Chiefs, a man by the name of Ernie Ladd, who I grew up watching as a kid growing up in Louisiana, watching Mid-South Wrestling. And Ernie Ladd was a member of those teams, but when he came into pro wrestling, he was known as the Big Cat. Big Cat Ernie Ladd was a phenomenal athlete when he was with the Chargers, but as a wrestler, he was both loved and hated as being a heel of all heels during, the, during his time in wrestling during the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. To round it off, we got Lex Luger, who came into the league known as Lawrence Fole. He played for the Packers in the early 1980s. He played the, all 16 games during the 1981 regular season, part of the 1982 season, but he was out of the league by 1983. And Bill Goldberg, who a lot of the newer fans of pro wrestling would recognize, he played for the Rams, the Falcons, and the Panthers, doing his playing career, and not to mention another uh, wrestler who I remember very fondly during the time I did watch wrestling when I, was a, when I was a teenager growing up in Louisiana was, of course, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who was a member of the Atlanta Falcons but was plagued with lingering knee injuries, so his career was cut short with the Atlanta Falcons. So that would be this week's shout-outs, talking about the great, pro wrestlers who had their start in the National Football League. And it all leads all the way back to Bronco Nagurski this week in 1941. And that will conclude this week's 
uh, shout outs and also this week's episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Once again, I'm Dana Augusta, your host. Thank you for joining us and come on back next week for another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to let you know some more content that may be coming your way in the upcoming days and weeks. So until next time, you all guys have a great week. So long and see you next time. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network Back in 2020, with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds, as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.